Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Today is a first for the Industry Standard podcast. What's scaring me is my guest is holding a microphone and he's listened to about 75 of these and he knows that I will go on and ramble, but he's poised to interrupt me in my cold open like a ninja and completely fuck me up and i'm talking about my guest today pound for pound the funniest person in the world and i'm talking about brad williams three feet eight inches tall four foot four barry okay i'm sorry i (laughs) trust me when you have so few of these inches every one of them counts i say that to every single woman i'm with (laughs) firstly thank you so much everybody for all the support it's amazing this is so incredible to be able to do this at lunchtime and and have some fun and, and have a little hobby that actually inspires and helps people it's so great speaking of helping people thank you for going to the barrycats.com website and clicking on that amazon banner it's amazing amazon takes care of my jewish boy college fund and it doesn't cost you anything it's incredible so if you go there you want to buy some amazon stuff go that's wonderful as you know i always look at my guests and i have a story that just comes to me and i don't know why it comes to me or where it comes to me i don't know what i'm gonna say and as i look at brad williams firstly 
very handsome Brad Williams today. He's got his beard nicely quaffed. He's got a new haircut. He's got new pants. It looks like he's got fairly new shoes. He's got a shirt that looks like it could be a tablecloth at some event. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, he looks good today. So I'd like to do what I always do, which is look at my guest, and I would like to think of a story that is meaningful in some way that I just think of as I look at him with his new pants, his new haircut, his freshly coiffed beard, his groomed eyebrows, and his iPhone that he's looking at like it's a picture of Pamela Anderson naked from 1986. <laughs> so... As I look at Brad Williams, I want to tell you about a story that I think has relevance. I was talking to his personal appearance agent, T.J. Mark Walter, who's a really amazing man and a really tremendous personal appearance agent, somebody who's worked in the business for over 30 years and has worked with some of the greatest comedians and just works so hard, kills himself, has so much pride. And I don't know of any comedian who works with him that doesn't feel wonderful about the work he does and how hard he works for them. I don't know of any comedian that I know that works with him that thinks that my God, you know, I can't believe I'm paying this guy 10% of my money. I just feel like this guy's doing nothing. It's just the opposite. It's almost like I can't believe the value that I get for what this man does for me. And I've known TJ my whole career, and we had a conversation about Brad Williams in terms of management, and at the time he didn't have anybody working with him. And I asked TJ if I could meet with Brad, which in the scheme of the politicalness of the way any business works, I'm sure there's certain channels you can go through. You can always go directly to the artist, but sometimes if you go directly to the artist, you upset the people on their team and they feel you're going behind their back. So a lot of times you want to figure out ways to do things in the right channels. And TJ I'd known for a long time. And I asked him for a meeting, and he told me that Brad would take a meeting with me. And so Brad came up to the office, and as a manager, there's a lot of things that happen in a room when you're meeting with somebody or as an agent that they're not videotaped. You can't find them on YouTube. Like if you want to learn how to play pool, you can go and find 750 different videos that tell you how to do a trick shot, how to put the backspin on the ball. If you want to learn magic, you can go and find thousands of videos online in terms of that and how to do a magic trick. But if you want to sit down with a relevant great artist as a manager, as an agent, there are no videos, there's no management college. There's no agent college. You sit down and you don't know what other people do, how they take meetings, what they accomplish in those meetings and what they drive forward and what their agenda is. For me, I feel like a chameleon because I feel like I just 
want to sit down and absorb who the person is and figure out how they tick and what it is about them that makes them brilliant and what it is about them that makes them talented. But in the end, I think for me, it's a basic thing that I always go back to, which is, I think the natural order of any human being in any job or in their personal lives, tell me the list of things that will make you happy. If you're in a personal relationship, guys go out on dates and they sit across from a woman and you just wish they would just pull out a pad of paper and just in a pen and just say, uh, it's really great meeting you. Let me, I just want to go through a few things right here. Um, I am going to want to get married by the time I'm 33. I'm 31 now in three months. Um, I'm going to want two children. Um, I'm going to want somebody who is going to support me and pay my bills. I just want to make sure I'm getting that clear for you here. I don't like to do certain things in the bedroom. So if you don't mind, just I don't want anybody to touch me there. But you can touch me here. Family is very important. I'm going to want to live within a three-mile radius of my mother and father. And uh, let's see here. Hmm. Yes, and I'm going to want you never to raise your voice to me or treat me disrespectfully. Listen, I'll just pass this paper over to you. Will you agree to this before we go on a second date and you can sign this for me? And the problem is, in life, I find the reason why anybody in the world is ever upset at anything, for the most part, when it comes to somebody else is because their expectations have not been exceeded or met. And so I find that that's all there normally is about unhappiness in terms of people personally or professionally. You expect certain things about what you want in your life or your career, and you want to make sure that they happen. So when I go into a meeting, the biggest thing I want to hear is I want to hear what the artist wants. What are their goals? What will make them happy? And I think to me, that's what it's all about. My job, in my humble opinion, is to check off the boxes. If I don't check off the boxes, then I haven't done what I said I was going to do. Now, granted, I could create the opportunities for those boxes and the artist could keep going in and failing. But at least at the end of the day, I'll know that I did what they wanted me to do and they just couldn't convert. So when I met with Brad and asked him what his, I guess you could say, bucket list was, It was a really interesting conversation. It wasn't, I'm sure he would agree, it wasn't groundbreaking. But he said a few things that meant something to me. Because I saw him as a person who was a complete original, authentic, 
really, really special talent, unique skills, and represented a original voice and an original physical presence that had never been seen headlining in comedy clubs or theaters that I know of in the history of comedy. And I knew he had acting ability, and I knew he had no fear because I had seen him perform at certain events where you could never have fear doing what he was doing. And I knew he was capable of doing all sorts of things, from talk shows to hosting to writing books to radio. And when you can work with an artist who has all of those skill sets and they are the nicest human being on the planet, then you have a combination of things that are really, really special. Add to that somebody who's not self-destructive and you have a situation where you have somebody who has unlimited potential. But when I met with Brad, it was kind of surprising to me because it's not that he was doing poorly. He wasn't doing poorly. He was doing the comedy club circuit. People knew him, and he'd done a few April Foolishness shows, which, for those of you who don't know, it's Kevin and Bean still do them, but they did these great shows at the 6,000-seat venue at Universal Studios called the Universal Amphitheater, which is no longer there. And Brad would consistently get standing ovations and people who were on the bill, which we'll talk about later, would have to reevaluate their lives and, and think about what they were doing. And Jay Moore had told me a lot about how he reevaluated his performance skills and how he was presenting himself after he saw Brad because he just went to the Universal Amphitheater thinking that he was going to do what he always did, go on, kill, get a standing ovation. But unfortunately for Jay, Brad went on before him, and he could feel that it wasn't the same kind of set, and he didn't understand why. And I told him before I had met with Brad that it was my opinion that Brad worked hard for that gig and was gearing for that gig ever since he got the call that he was doing it. Planning, scheming, figuring out how he was going to go on that gig and have the best set of the night against people like Jay Moore and Eddie Izzard, Jim Jeffries, Bill Burr. So when I met with Brad, he said, listen, I have some goals. These are my goals. I want to do my own hour special. I haven't done an hour special yet, and I, I would love to do that. I would love to be cast in a scripted show for a major network. And I would love to be in a situation where I could get my own radio show in a major national market or nationally. And so I sat down and listened to Brad, and I did something that I oftentimes, probably the wrong thing to do for anybody. I looked him in the eyes and I told him that if given the opportunity, I will make sure that those goals are accomplished. And because I felt that 
myself, oftentimes it's not meant as a conceited thing to say, but there's certain things that I do feel strongly about about myself as a manager, almost invincible when I get the opportunity to do it. But then when you get a chance to do it with somebody else who you feel is invincible, then you feel like you can just walk on water. And so I told them that, listen, if given the opportunity, I will make sure and I will guarantee you that these things will happen. I don't know if they're going to happen through osmosis. I don't know if they're going to happen through the gods and the, the clouds parting. Or I don't know if they're going to happen by a combination of your talent or my talent. But fuck it, they're going to happen. And I will spit blood for you and make sure they happen. At the end of the meeting, he let me know that it was something that he wanted to do, which was so humbling and so wonderful. And when he left that office, I was ecstatic. I was so excited because I knew that Brad Williams was going to be one of the biggest stars in comedy and film and television and radio and podcasting and everything. I just had this feeling. And I'm when I have this feeling come over me, it just, it's never wavering. And it's always something that drives me. And from when he closed that door, I was excited to make things happen for Brad Williams. Within a short period of time, probably less than a year, Brad Williams got certain calls in succession. One of the calls was John Moore, who I worked with on Moore Sports with Jay Moore and did many NASCAR shows and award shows and special telecasts with him. He was doing his own scripted show for NBC through Brad's talent and I guess my relationships. He delivered he killed it, and he got the gig, and they shot the pilot. Unfortunately, he didn't get picked up, but he did an NBC pilot. And then there was a person that uh, Brad knew and I knew that was on Playboy Radio that got a big gig up in San Francisco for radio. And I got the call from the program director. We worked together with Brad's relationships with Kevin Klein, the other Kevin Klein. And we negotiated a deal for Brad to move to San Francisco, be able to go back and forth and do some comedy gigs here and there to start in the number four market in the country. He got that gig and he was amazing, but his nephew has just been born and he missed his family and he missed stand-up, doing it as frequently as he could, and he realized he could always do radio. And through his podcast, he could deliver to an audience that was probably just as big as that audience in San Francisco. He could do it in his spare time and do everything. Also got the call that he was going to be getting his own one-hour special for Showtime, filming in Santa Barbara. Which, by the way, everybody, right now is the highest rated hour special on Showtime in 2015. 
there's nothing like accomplishing those goals with an artist who is an amazing, amazing man who treats everybody with respect. I think together, I think the message for me as I look at him and I think about these stories is the fact that as an artist or in any business that you're in, it's important to set goals for yourself. And it's fantastic to accomplish those goals on your own. But if you can find somebody who's passionate about you in your life and who believes in you and will also ride along with you in the passenger seat or the driver's side and help you accomplish those goals, then that's the ultimate. It's an amazing, amazing feeling when things go well and it gives you the excitement and the passion and the confidence to know that other great things can happen. And as I sit here with Brad Williams, I can share with you that he has three shows that are about to go into some sort of development. He has another Showtime special that he's planning right now that is going to be shot in January. And I pretty much can guarantee you that that also will be the highest rated program on Showtime. And you always know when you're doing a great job when the president of the acquisitions department at Showtime calls you and says, listen, Barry, would you do me a favor? Would you print up a poster that we can frame to put in the hallway? That's the ultimate goal. So again, set your goals. If you can find somebody that believes in you, that can also go with you forward with those goals to make them happen, tremendous. And I can almost guarantee you that you can rise over any adversity. And if you don't think Brad Williams has had adversity, think again. So set the goals, find the people to ride with you and rally around you, and you will take your career to any height you want to take it to. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, 
and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before, Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. I am here with a man who is... Oh, I get such a great feeling from him all the time. You know the people that you meet where they walk into the room and the hair on the back of your neck stands up? Brad Williams is not that guy. <laughs> when Brad Williams walks in the room, your hair actually goes into place and it settles down nicely in whatever part of your body it is. Anyway, I'm going to introduce him. Hopefully, he will not slip into a diabetic coma as I go on with this intro, which is very long. Brad Williams has become one of the funniest, most in-demand comedians working today. A California native, Brad started doing stand-up at age 19 has been touring ever since. He has appeared on numerous TV shows, including Legit with Jim Jeffries, Dave Attell's Comedy Underground, Sam and Cat Live at Gotham, The Tonight Show, Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Mind of Mencia, and Pit Boss. In addition to stand-up, Brad has become a dynamic on-air personality as well. His podcast about last night is a mainstay on the iTunes charts, always up there, kicking many podcast asses with guests like Melissa McCarthy. And I mean, it's just unbelievable what he's done uh, with his partner, Adam Ray, who I love. He is a regular on K-Rock's Kevin and Bean show in Los Angeles and has been a regular as well on the Adam Carolla podcast. If you've ever seen Brad's show, it's a very high-energy show, and late Robin Williams called him Prozac with a head. Brad's ability to make humorous observations on disability, relationships, sex, race, are winning over audiences and proving anyone can overcome their shortcomings. Williams was born with achondroplasia, a type of dwarfism, and his condition plays a large part in the bits in both the stand-up comedy and television roles. He was a student at Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, California, and after graduation attended the University of Southern California, but dropped out to pursue his acting and comedy career. He got a start by attending a Carlos Mencia live comedy show, and while he was there, in the crowd, Mencia made jokes about dwarfs. The people sitting close to Williams were scared to laugh. Mencia noticed this, then noticed Williams, and he asked Brad to join him on stage. Brad cracked a few jokes and impressed Mencia, and then he asked Williams to try to do stand-up and be his opening act on the road. Very unusual, everybody. Brad then was Mencia's opening act ever since, opening up shows on both the Mind of Mencia tour and the popular Punisher tour. Brad's memorable roles on The Mind of Mencia include playing a dwarf whore, Horf, the leader of an all-dwarf basketball team, joining Mencia at a renaissance fair, and giving a speech about his hatred of podiums. Brad is frequently confused with Wee Man from Jackass because of their similar appearance, 
And for St. Patrick's Day 2008, Brad dressed as a leprechaun, made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno for Halloween in 2008, and dressed up as Chucky for a skit on Jimmy Kimmel Live. On July 31st, 2010, Brad appeared in an episode of Pit Boss on Animal Planet called Surprise, Surprise, and in April 2011, Brad released his first full-length comedy album called Coming Up Short. It is available on iTunes, Amazon, and his website. Williams currently hosts the About Last Night podcast with comedian actor Adam Ray. As I said before, Brad appeared on Kevin and Bean's April Foolishness comedy shows on several years alongside such comedians as Bob Saget, Jay Moore, Jim Jeffries, Bill Burr, Eddie Izzard, and he was always the only comedian to receive a standing ovation on those shows. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, a guy I've been very excited to have for a long time, and I'm glad I am, executive producer of his own stand-up specials, Brad Williams. Hi, Mr. Katz. <laughs> now, it's it's weird when you do when you do an intro like that. I feel like I should come on with a more booming, godlike voice, but I guess this one will have to do. <laughs> what was that movie? I am God. Oh, oh, Malice. Geez. Yeah, Malice. Yeah, Alec yeah, yeah. Baldwin <laughs> in Operating Room Thirty Six. Wow, very cats. Very cats doing impressions. Sorry. Well, hey, you're you, you're owed it because everyone does impressions of you, so you should be allowed to be do impressions of other people. Everyone. Uh, pre- it's weird. Um, my podcast partner Adam Ray, uh, he's going in to pitch a. A TV show of his own today as we speak and he asked me for any advice and I started to give him some advice that you gave me and I told him that you gave it to me and he stopped me and said do it as Barry <laughs> <laughs> so you want to recite what you said to him yeah man okay <laughs> basically what I told him is that when you walk into that room oftentimes you feel that you're the first man that those people have seen that day <laughs> The mindset you have to have when pitching a television show is you have to walk in there imagining that Tom Hanks just was in there right before you and was pitching his own television show. So who the fuck are you, man? Why should they give you a television show over Tom Hanks? That's what you have to show them in that room. Man. <laughs> so I did it as you. And uh that was uh he he was inspired by that and uh and got and got a laugh about it. You're 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 one of uh I I I've, I've even told you that my girlfriend do, uh, does an impression of you. <laughs> I hope when she has clothes on. Uh yes, cuz that would confuse the hell out of me. <laughs> that would make my penis very confused. Uh you'd need some special colored pills to yeah, get for that one. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, uh, she she told me some advice that you uh gave her in terms of her relationship with me when I when I was on stage in uh Santa Barbara she said I oh. gave her advice when yeah yeah now that's a little odd cuz that can get dangerous so you... it can attest the manager client relationship when the manager talks to the client's girlfriend and says hey this is this is how you keep my client happy that <laughs> it's kind of interesting i was when she led into it that way i thought oh god what the hell what, the, what did Barry say what did what happened <laughs> now tell the audience what i said to her uh well once again i'm going to do this as you <laughs> Uh, now you're on stage in Santa Barbara. Yeah, I, I, I'm on stage 
and you come up to her and you and you pretty much say I understand that Brad feels very strongly for you <laughs> <laughs> and it takes a, a very special woman to be with a stand up comedian <laughs> a woman that has to not be on the, the sidelines but certainly in the wings and letting him do his thing <laughs> while he's performing and chasing dreams and being on the road and being away from you and not have never having a typical relationship. It takes a very special woman to be able to look at that situation and say, this is where I am comfortable and this man is someone I'm going to be safe with. So I want to thank you for being the woman who you are because I can tell you from the conversations I've had with Brand that he is extremely happy in his current situation. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> I, you know, part of me wants to laugh and part of me wants to cry. <laughs> well, it was it, it was a good speech, and 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 she when she told me this, um, also doing her impersonation of you, uh, which is. Pretty much just as good. Uh, when, when, when she did that... It's a fantastic impression. Yeah. I can't believe how great it is. I, she, I never hear you do it. Well, it. It's weird to do it to someone's face. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, like uh, I, uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, John Rudnitsky, he is the newest cast member of Saturday Night Live. He does a great Matthew McConaughey impression. Matthew McConaughey recently hosted Saturday Night Live, and uh, he was ready to do it. And Matthew came in with the prerequisite of no one is allowed to do a Matthew McConaughey impression, <laughs> which is kind of weird because it was a week after or two weeks after Donald Trump was flanked by two Trumps. He like he had Taron Killam and Daryl Hammond both doing Trump next to him, which uh, that's got to be intense. But um, so yeah, I, I don't do the impression too often for you. But she also told me that she's like it's it, it's it's interesting talking to Barry, and because you're because you're comfortable and extremely uncomfortable at the same time. And I go, <laughs> it was the stare, wasn't it? <laughs> And she said, "Yes, you have, you you have this very intense stare that um, when you're not laughing and when you're when, when when you're just taking it all in, when you're just absorbing what the person is saying to you, uh, you have a very intense stare. Where if you don't know that about you, you think that you're upset." Or you're not entertained by what the person is saying, and it's uh, it, it's quite interesting to be to be to to be a part of. So if, if you're not ready for it, then it could certainly uh, it could certainly catch you off guard. <laughs> Whenever we give pep talks to each other, and whenever I give pep talks to other people, I, I always do it in your voice because it just sounds better people know my voice no they have no idea why the fuck i'm doing that <laughs> they go, what's happening did you suddenly did you suddenly get bell's palsy like like why are you talking like that and uh, it's like well it just feels better it, it, it feels better and i know that whenever i come into your office and we have our talks and or uh, whenever i get off the phone with you um I, I, I usually feel better i i usually feel uh uh stronger and that i can and that I can accomplish certain things. When people ask me, uh, when I tell them Barry Katz is my manager, and they say, well, uh, what's that like? I say, well, in the first year, and I essentially accomplished the things that you said in the intro, where, uh, yeah, first year, NBC pilot, one-hour special, 
and uh, my own radio show up in uh, up in San Francisco. Yeah, I'd say it's I'd say it's a good thing to have Barry Katz as a manager. Uh, and 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 I say hour special because uh, there's there's a certain network that does half hour specials that uh, turned me down three times three times for uh, for a half hour special my favorite reason being that they said my comedy was not alternative enough and my response was I'm a fucking midget <laughs> how much more alternative is that mainstream comedy now dwarfs telling jokes is that every every comedy club across the country has a has a four foot bundle of joy on stage <laughs> spitting fire is that four foot happened? four four foot four thank you don't shortchange yourself <laughs> never uh so that so that was interesting so the fact that i then got to do an hour special uh on showtime uh the same network that has shows like Dexter and Nurse Jackie and just uh, groundbreaking television programs. The fact that I, I I got to do an hour special with them was really great, and uh, it was a really cool experience and uh, a fun experience, and finally being able to show the world what I can do. And uh, that that part was because, uh, like you said, when when someone tells you that you're not when some executive says you're funny but you're not our type of funny and we don't know if people are going to get you and then like you say i go on stage at april foolishness and i get a standing ovation and the great the wonderful jay moore comes on stage and says in, in, in the microphone let's be honest after brad williams were all playing for second place which was his quote very rare another thing for a comic to say yeah. and acknowledge that yeah when you when that happens and then the network says eh, we don't know we, we, we don't know if you're funny we don't know you, you, you just want to grab them by the throat and be like you fucking assholes <laughs> are you kidding me but you just have to bide your time and then uh, when I finally got the special it ended up being the most watched special this year uh, on Showtime, and that's with someone that that's beating out people that had TV shows that have TV shows are in movies are in television, and uh, just word spread, and uh, and I was with you when Showtime told me they're like it got a it got a good rating the first time it aired, but what it did that other that don't that other specials don't do is that it kept getting good ratings and they've aired it almost it seems like over 40 times since its debut in may it got higher ratings the yeah they're aired yeah it, it went up the mo the more time and it's the same thing it's the same jokes you know it's, it's not like every hour it's a new episode like what what show what show if run on television with this exact same episode would get higher ratings i don't know uh, and I want to share something with the audience, and Brad might be upset that I share this, but that's I think all right. it's really says something. So that weekend, there were six-hour specials that mm -hmm. were shot. Yes. They were Andrew Dice Clay. Yes. Jay Moore. Mm-hmm. Ben Glebe, who yes. hosts a show called Idiot Test, a great show. Yeah, on the, show. on the Game Show Network. Kirk Fox. Kirk Fox. Mm-hmm. And Brad Williams. Correct. Okay. I was there for all the shows because I, fortunately enough, I work with four of the those people. Yeah. I don't work with Dice, but I love Dice. Mm-hmm. 
There were four shows out of those five shows that completely sold out and turned away people that mm-hmm. I know of. Mm-hmm. Those four shows did not include Brad Williams' name on them. Mm-hmm. Brad Williams' show was half full. It was. And thanks to some great camera tricks by Scott Montoya, it looked like it was full, but it was half full. It was half full. So here we have an artist who, for some reason, the world didn't know how great he was. Mm -hmm. Ben Glebe, I don't know what social thing he did. It was the most stressful show for me, of all of them, because there were so many people trying to get in. Mm-hmm. Kirk Fox has no social networking presence. <laughs> has no... Uh, now he does because he's on Periscope and he has right. like three million people. Yeah. But back then, he didn't. And now he's starting on a show called Rush Hour, which is exciting. But but he didn't have anything. And his show was like a six o'clock show. Yeah. And it was really crowded. Yeah. Jay show, no problem. Jay Moore, Dice, Dice, no problem. problem. Brad, 300 people, <laughs> maybe. And yet, as the show was starting, I was thinking to myself, God, this is tough. Because when you have double the crowd, double the laughs, sure. double the power. Energy, yeah. But Brad Williams, it didn't bother him. It didn't matter if there were three people, 300 or 3,000. Mm-hmm. This was his shot. This was his opportunity. And he gave everything he had. And he performed that special like there were 3,000 people there. And he crushed and got a full standing ovation. And the way this show was edited... It's a simple thing when you're producing it. You just bring the cameras in a little bit, and it looks like there's hundreds and hundreds more people. It looks like it's sold yeah. out. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. And the sound coming from the theater was as great, if not greater, than any of those other four people that were on. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to point out is that not only does the guy have gone through adversity, but then he gets his first hour special, and for some reason... <laughs> Every special is packed except for his. <laughs> and he's on a prime, I think he's 8 o'clock on Friday or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was uh, Yeah, I was at the 10 o'clock. But yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. When I looked out in the audience, I was like, okay. You know, it, it, it wasn't full. But I was just so happy to have a special. I was so happy to finally have the chance that's all that because that's all anyone really wants in this business is we all want a shot whatever that shot may be we want to we want our chance to be on stage and show people what we what, what, what we can do that's all I wanted I just the reason want- why I tell that story is because so many people and I don't care what job you're in they go in it's like oh like some an actor going to audition ah oh, Jesus it's a cattle call fuck I'm never gonna get this mm-hmm Oh, I'm writing my book. Well, there's so many people who write books. I'm never going to fucking get my book done. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going for this interview at the law firm, but fuck. You know, I didn't go to Harvard. I mean, how am I going to fucking get the job at this law firm when all these people... I wasn't the top of my class, whatever. Yeah. And so the point I'm trying to make is you went in, and it's like almost a punch in the gut because 
the artist. He's in the dressing room. He's getting ready. And then when he walks out, he sort of takes a peek right before he goes on. And it's like, mm. oh, Jesus. <laughs> it could be devastating. He could get in his own head and say, oh, fuck. Well, I'll just do the best I can. This isn't meant to be. But not Brad Williams. No. Brad Williams no, went no, no, like no. it was oversold. Well, and the the thing with that is, is maybe someone that hadn't dealt with things of that nature before would be, would have been frazzled by that, would have been spooked by that. But that's par for the course for me. I I understand that as as a little person. I I I remember the first time, uh, I I really was conscious of people having lower expectations and me having to shatter them was uh, I was seven years old. Uh, my dad, who is an avid golfer, uh, has played since he was four, took me to play nine holes at his club where he's a member. And this, and this was the first time that I, that I had ever been asked to do this. And this was a big moment to be with, to be with my dad. And when, uh, when we teed off on the first tee, there was a crowd that formed around the tee box. This is not a tournament. This is not anything. No, but every golfer saw me at the time. If I'm seven, I'm about two foot eight. <laughs> you know, uh, saw me walk up with my clubs and said, "What the hell is what? Did 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 Pete Williams go to the island to Doctor Moreau and?" and pick up a golfer what the hell <laughs> that's a reference that five people are laughing hysterically at anyway um and all these people surrounded and i heard them whispering as a seven-year-old i heard adults going what the fuck what really why has he got to bring his kid why is he gonna bring his kid like look at him he's gonna embarrass himself and i teed off and <laughs> and i hit the ball about 120 yards which for a seven-year-old is pretty damn good. I don't care, seven-year-old, average-sized kid. How many times have you played golf practicing before that? Since I was four. But I but, but this is my first time playing a nine-hole court like with my dad. And I hit the ball about, a, 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 about 120 yards, and this old guy that had been whispering the loudest yelled out, Jiminy Christmas! <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment, I was like, ha! I did it! Fuck you. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what the word fuck was at the time, but I'm sure I thought it. Um, I'm a guy that when that when I was born and it was found out that I had dwarfism, uh, my parents' friends told my parents, you know, you should probably just put him up for adoption. His life is going to be too hard. His life is going to be awful, and you're and you're. It's going to break your heart to watch this kid grow up and struggle as much as he can as he's going to struggle, and he's not going to accomplish all these dreams that you have for your son. These are people who I still know today. My parents told me who they were. I know who these people are. They told my family to give me up for adoption. I still see them, and so when I see, so that's the kind of adversity that I've faced when. L Literally, people never gave me a shot from right when I was born. They said, ah, let's discard that one. Try again. No. No. Never. I'm, ne I'm never going to let you be right. 
I'm never going to let I'm never going to let someone who expects lower expectations of me be right. I'm never going to let that happen. So when I walk on stage and the house is half full, you 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 think a house that's half full is going to stop me from doing well on my first hour special, my one hour special for premium cable, my introduction to the world for a lot of people. Fuck you. No, that's never going to happen. I'm not going to let you do that to me. So that's so that's why I didn't get discouraged. And that's why I'll put on a hell of a show if 20 people show up to my show. I'll put on a hell of a show if, if, if 300 people show up. Or I'll put on a hell of a show when... I do the Wilbur Theater in Boston in March, and there's and there's going to be 1,200 people there. I'm going to do a hell of a show for them too because I'm not going to let anyone that doesn't think I can do it be right. Do you ever feel like a family get-together? Just, hey, Uncle Sid, how you doing? Listen, could you come here for a second? I want to talk to you about something. <laughs> yeah, I there were the people who told my family that they should give me up for adoption. Like I said, I know who they are. I gave them tickets to my hour special for that reason. I wanted to look them in the eye while I was doing it. While I was on stage, while I was doing my one hour comedy special, which no other little person has ever done. No, and if I'm wrong, tweet me the names. I know there's Tanya Lee Davis. I know there's Nick Novicki. I, I, I know there's great, talented, wonderful uh, dwarf comics, but they've never done an hour special. So I want to look into your eyes when you realize how wrong you were when you said to my mom and dad, try again. That's not the one you want. I want to see the look on your face. I, I, I invited them for that purpose. And so you see them after the show. Yeah. They come in, they don't know that you know. Mm-hmm. So do you feel anything when you look in their eyes, like yeah. from them? Yeah. What do you feel? What do you think they're thinking? What, what is they, they don't remember that they said those things. How do you know? Uh, not, at, not at the time. They're not thinking about it at, at, at the time. I've, I've had my, I've had my uh, godfather moment. Where I grab them and go, I know it was you. I know what you've said. I know what you thought. And what did they say? They said, "Well, Brad, you gotta understand. We didn't know. We didn't know what dwarfism was. We had no idea." And I and I, and I go, "No, I'm not. I'm not mad at you. I'm thanking you. I'm th- I'm thanking you for lighting that fire under my ass from day one to make me look at life and never let anyone like you be correct about me." So thank you for that. Wow. Yeah. All right. So (laughs) share with our audience your beginnings, what kind of life you had growing up, your family and what they were like before you were born, what they, what was, you know, what the whole family was like and what happened as you were growing up and your relationship with your father and your Mm -hmm. mom. Uh, well, I'm the only dwarf in the family, which is why, you know, people may have had those misconceptions about me when I was born in terms of what dwarfism is. Um, so yeah mom and dad uh dad's a lawyer uh mother uh, was a banker until i reached about the age of three or four then decided to raise us full-time me me and my sister i have a sister who's 15 months older 
so uh, just two just two children. We are we are the Cleaver family. We, you know, we grew up with mom, dad. Dad went to work. Mom stayed home with the kids. Sister, brother, and dog. Like we were that we we were that family, upper middle class household. Uh, but I was always kind of the black sheep of the family. I was the weird one, which I didn't mind. I don't care. It was, uh, it, 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 but it, it was a great place to grow up in because my dad never. Some people, and I know, and I've seen this happen many times. Some people, when they have a child who's different, they have a tendency to shelter them. They have a tendency of putting a bubble around them and protecting them and uh, hiding them away from everyone else. Either shame, caution fear, whatever emotion drives it. For my dad, he knew that that wasn't, that if he, that if I were to be successful, that couldn't happen. He couldn't hide me away. He had to expose me to the world at a very young age. So I remember him sitting me down and, and telling me like, Hey, you're not like everybody else. People are going to make fun of you. And you have to think of how you're gonna to react to that. What 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 are you gonna do when someone makes fun of you? And I was and I was that was a kid. I was two, three, four years old, and I was like, well, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna tell an adult. And he's like, no, you're not. You're not gonna tell an adult. You're gonna come back. You're gonna fight. You are going. If someone insults you, you insult them worse. You make them cry. You make them regret ever saying that thing to you. And he's telling a, a essentially slightly bigger than a toddler this. So your dad, if you had to summarize what your dad's mission statement was to yeah. you, mm -hmm. what would you say in terms of preparing you for life? Basically, my dad's philosophy is that he was going to prepare me for the world that is and not the world that should be. In the world that should be, I should never be made fun of. In the world it should be, no one should ever be assaulted. In, in the world it should be, what happened in Paris should never happen. But we live in the world that is, where all those things do happen, where all those things do unfortunately occur. So who do you want to be? Do you want to be the person that has never faced adversity before in your life? Do you want to be the person that doesn't know what it's like to go through struggle? Because struggle will happen. Life will hit you. Life is undefeated. Life life will always come at you with something. And if you've never had struggle, you won't you're gonna get punched in the face for the first time and not know what the hell to do. But if you've gone through struggle, if you've gone through adversity, then you always know how to react to it. You you, you know to stay calm and you know what steps you need to take to overcome it. So that's how my dad raised me. So by the time I got to school, and kids thought they thought they were gonna make fun of me and thought they were gonna bully me and thought, well, look at him, he's easy pickings. Uh, no, I made every kid regret that through comebacks, through uh, th through just uh, insulting them, through sometimes just downright embarrassing them in front of the entire class. It was made very apparent very quickly. Don't mess with Brad. Now, how many times did you get sent down to the principal's office? First day at school. That was fun. <laughs> well, well, the best part is that whenever I would get sent to the office or whenever a teacher would talk to me, it, but see, here's the thing. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get off the impression I was a bad kid. I had great grades. I studied hard. I was uh, nice to and kind to everyone. But the second someone insulted me, no, game on, gloves on, shotgun loaded, cocked. You're, you're not getting away. First day of school, I got sent. 
to the principal's office because a kid uh, ran out of line, walked up to me, and screamed in front of the audience, "Ha ha, you're little!" And I re- and I re- retaliated. I said, "Ha ha, your mom doesn't live with your dad anymore." <laughs> and the kid and it's California, so you got a fifty-fifty shot at getting that right. <laughs> and uh, I got that right, and the kid started crying. And and then the kid goes goes to the teacher and said, "He made me cry." And then I got sent to the principal's office. So then the principal does something that strikes fear in every child when it, when whenever they're in whenever they've messed up whenever they're in trouble. The worst thing anyone could ever say to that child is, "I'm calling your father." And the principal says, "I'm calling your father." That had no effect on me. I was smiling. I was like, "Do it." Great. I'm gonna tell him later, so you might as well tell him now. This is exciting. He didn't believe me. He 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 thought I was trying to trying to do like reverse psychology on him. It's like I'm six. I don't know what reverse psychology is. Uh so he called up my dad and he told him what happened. And my dad's response was, Did he start it or did he finish it? The principal says, Well, he finished it. And my dad said on the speakerphone, he's like, Well, problem at your school isn't my son, problem at your school is that kid's a pussy. Click. Hangs up. <laughs> And now I'm dancing around the office like, yeah, like I was so excited and so happy. And, and the principal knew he had nothing on me. So I, I, I went back to class. Um, I probably got sent up to the principal's office three times within the first two years of school. But uh, I was taught very uh, I, I, like it, it was it was word spread that you don't do anything. And the best part is that the older kids would start to back me. So if you were a first grader and you made fun of me. Great. I got two fifth graders that are, that are going to come beat you up. Like they they're like, "Well, Brad, well Brad's not going to fight me." You're right. I'm not. They are. And uh that that happened that happened on multiple occasions where kids stuck up for me and uh and uh kind of fought my battles for me, which I was fine with. I I was perfectly all right with that. As you went into high school, mm-hmm. tell us about your feelings going to high school whereas you know you go into high school and look my son goes into sixth grade in my son's school they have six through 12 in uh, in the same school so he's going to school with 12 graders and whatever and he says he wants to cut his hair before he goes he goes to get his hair cut he says let me i just want to do what i want to do dad and he comes out and his hair is like skrillex he's got one side of his head buzz cut the mm-hmm. other half of his head is is long down past his shoulders yeah and i said to him i said you know that you could get bullied because of this he said i'm that i'm gonna kill him with kindness i'm gonna kill him with comedy <laughs> and i would go back and forth with him in the car doing the insults like you and your dad yeah. talked about yeah and they did and he tells me that I said, do people believe you? Do they say things? He says, yeah, but I just come right back at them. I don't let it bother me. I Love come it. back with a joke. Love it. He said, I want to be an original. I want to be, I don't want to be like everybody else. And Love I it. thought that was really interesting because I didn't, I guess it's part of the culture that you grow up in or however, mm-hmm. but you go into high school and high school is very clicky Yep. and guys start going out with girls. Yep. Are you dating any girls in high school or do high school girls just, they can't get over it and they're just not ready to go out with a little person? Correct. The second one. Uh, Did you ask anybody out? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they all said no. Yeah. There was a, this was, and I I did, because 
my philosophy wasn't okay. So I I I, I heard no by a couple of girls. So my philosophy was never I, I I need to stop. My philosophy was I need to go bigger. <laughs> What's the nicest way a girl said no to you, and the meanest way a girl said no to you? Okay. Nicest way, like I, I would get a lot of no. You're, you're, you're a good friend, and I, and I don't want to ruin the friendship, and I don't want to ruin that. And I thought, all right, fine. So you had a lot of girls in high school that were your friends. Tons, yeah. Oh, okay. So and 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 I would remain friends with them. The uh, now, were you the only kid in your high school with a disability? No, uh, there was actually three little people at my school. Uh, there was uh, there was a bro- there was a brother and sister. And uh, a brother and sister, yeah. is that unusual? Uh, no, not 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 entirely. So they they went to my high school and were at there at the same time. The only thing was that everyone expected me to then date the female. Everyone's like, "Well, that's yours." You're like that's that's your girl. The awkward part is when they tried to get the brother and sister to date because they didn't know that they were brother and sister. They'd be like, "James, look at over there. Yeah, that's a hottie." And he's like, "Yeah, that's my sister. I've uh, grown up with her my entire life." Uh, and that was one of the reasons why I, I actually didn't date the female little person. It's not that I didn't find her attractive. It's that I had grown up with her my entire life. I had known her my entire life. So uh, that was kind of I, I couldn't get past that. So you um, went bigger. Yeah, and by bigger I mean more grandiose gestures. To show them, like, well, if you said no, what if I do this? Like, the there was one time where I had started this rumor around school that I really had a crush on a girl, and everyone was asking me, like, who is who is she? Who is she? What what girl do you like? What girl do you like? And I was like, oh, I'll tell I'll tell you guys one day. And she kept, they they kept asking, who is she? And then the girl was even asking, who is she? Who's who's the girl? And Finally, after about a week of letting this rumor just grow and grow and grow, I said, you know what? I'm going to tell you guys who the girl is. And everyone's like, oh, my God. Wow. Great. All right. Let's go find out. I go, here, I'll, I'll go show you. I, I know where she is right now. And we, and we walk. And the girl is in the group that's walking with me to find out who the girl is that I like. And we walk up to this entryway to the school that had this huge mirror this huge mirror where kids can walk in and like see themselves and be like, okay, I'm dress code, whatever, like whatever. And I walk up to that mirror. I take a few steps back, stand behind the girl that I like, the girl that's been following me. And I just look and I go and I point her right at the mirror and I go, there she is. Isn't she beautiful? And the, like there are, there are eighth grade girls crying from this gesture. They're like, oh my God, that's the sweetest thing I've ever seen. The girl that I did it to immediately bursts into tears and runs in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so you set yourself up for a possible failure. Yes, and I failed huge. And she runs in the bathroom. What do you feel when she does that? Oh, that someone just drop kicked my heart. Someone just, you know, said, you're not going to be needing this anymore, and punt. <laughs> like, <laughs> So the next time you see her, what, mm-hmm. what does she say to you? She just says, I'm sorry, I can't date you. And I go, okay, that's fine. In my head, every time I got rejected, I used it as fuel of one day you're going to regret this decision. All right, so tell our audience the first time okay. you ask 
So tell me the first time you asked an average size girl out mm-hmm. and how many times you'd been rejected up to that point and what happened. Oh, man. When she said yes. Um, okay. The first time I asked a average size woman out because I dated other dwarf girls from ages... 16 to 21 i dated pretty much exclusively dwarf women is that an easier play like when yeah. you ask a a, du- a woman who's a dwarf out she always says yes yeah <laughs> has any dwarf or little person mm-hmm. ever said no when you ask them no out? zero so you're Never. batting a hundred percent yeah with little people yes and with average people sized you're zero. batting zero percent Kind of, kind, of, kind of a mind fuck, don't you think, Barry? <laughs> <laughs> You're perfect one day, you know? Uh, so I, I, I dated a, a, lot, a lot of little people. I went to six proms, Barry. Six. All right, so the first time you lose your virginity, how mm-hmm. old are you? 20. 20. So that's yeah. after you quit USC yeah. and you decide to do comedy. Yes. So you, But you're dating these little people through high school, but they're not giving up the action. Yes. Yes. And do you know why? Uh, it, it, it was a combination of them and me. I, I, I wanted to be something uh, special. And so girls were trying to fuck you and you were saying no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were some times when I was, when I thought, all right, here it is. This is the one. And then, and then they said no. And then that they were waiting for something special, whatever. So the first woman you lost your virginity to at mm-hmm. 20, was she average size or little person? L- little person. Yes. Got it. Yes. And why did you choose her? Um, why did I choose? Uh, you know, we it, it was we had a convention, and yes, there's dwarf conventions, and it was in San Francisco, and that was uh, uh, where she's from, and uh, we just kind of got along well. And uh, st- and we we had a bunch of mutual friends and we got along great and she was really sweet and uh, we we started dating based on that but uh, she was very religious though and didn't want to have sex uh, until we were until we were married uh, I had never had sex before so I'm like great yeah I'll wait it out what's another few <laughs> you know. <laughs> But then one time she calls me up and she lives in San Francisco and she says, I'm ready. I feel like we've reached the point in our relationship where it's good. I go, all right. And I I get in my car and I drive up essentially. So you're driving six, seven hours knowing yes. you're going to get some action. Yes. What are you feeling inside? Oh, extreme excitement. Like, I'm going to do this thing. Like, And that's like... Can you imagine? Because a lot of times losing your virginity is a spontaneous decision in the moment. This was just like, and to know how powerful sex is, I got the all clear at about noon. At 10 p.m., I was in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we're, uh, we're at her place. We're in, we're in the bedroom. Her whole thing was the, her parents were gone for that weekend. And then uh, things start things start progressing, and uh, it gets to the point where all right, we're gonna do this thing, and then she stops, and she holds both of my hands in hers, and she says, "I need you to pray." What? 
<laughs> she says, I need, I, I need you to pray to God right now and ask for his forgiveness for what we're about to do. Granted, I'm a virgin with a raging erection right now. <laughs> and I say raging because it was upset because it had never been used. <laughs> so, and but sure enough, as we're both nude, we get down on the floor on our knees, not in the hot way. And uh, I have to pray to God in that moment <laughs> and say, forgive us for what we're about to do. We, we, we do this not for uh, sins of the flesh, but because we do it to honor the love that you have that you have provided for us we feel like I, I we feel that you have you have let us find each other and then and now we found each other so we're doing this not to spite you but to honor you and that that is what that is what i came up with in that moment uh something along those lines and then uh and 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 then we but then now see if that happened today there's no way i'm keeping that erection <laughs> no way there's a timer on this thing now i'm 30 like this is now like but then at 20 having never done that before it was like you know i would look down and he's still up there like don't worry we got this boss and uh yeah so uh we 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 did the thing and then um and then we were broken up about 2 months later and it was her uh dumping me because uh I was doing too much stand up I was going on the road and uh she said you got to make a choice me or stand up and I went well that's easy <laughs> stand up so uh yeah that's why that uh relationship never worked out now, I have to ask you a personal question that I yeah. don't know. Okay. Uh, that for I would say I'm average size, but I'm not average size. So no, I, you're I don't, a tall. You're no, like you're big. Myself. You're a tall. You're 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 a tall Jew, Barry. I'm a tall Jew. <laughs> so for little people, okay, mm -hmm. little people, men. Now the natural thing would be to assume that every part of their anatomy is the same size. Yeah. I would say that uh, my uh, my uh, tack uh, that my bits and pieces, uh, their average size. They're not they're not big. They're not smaller. Just kind of like all right, but on me it looks fucking huge. Got it. Okay. <laughs> it Got look, it. Uh, now it, so it, like my penis on you, you look huge. Oh, massive! That's but you big. put my dick on Shaq, and you would point and laugh at him. God, what about women? Going, going back to your other question, is that pussy tight? Uh, I never said that. <laughs> uh, it, it's yeah, it, it it it's fine. I've never, uh, I've had, I, I've I've had sex with both little people and average sized women, and there isn't a dramatic difference. There's nothing that that makes you go like, oh God, this is something brand new. No, it's it's now one of the things like about you that I love so much, and I, yeah. I'll never forget the first time I heard you say it. So I asked you, why do you think so many average size women want to be mm -hmm. with you mm -hmm. as a little person? Yep, I know, I know the answer because I'm safe, Barry. <laughs> I'm safe. And you are safe, and people feel safe, and that's fine. They don't, yeah. so they don't think anything's gonna happen. No, because when you, because when women go out with an average sized guy, and I'm talking average sized women, there's always that knowledge in the back of their mind that 
if this guy wants to do something, there's going to be a struggle, but more than likely he will get his way. And you, they can never, they, they can get That's away. That's never going to happen. Never going to happen. You can run faster than me. <laughs> you can get on. You you, you, you can jump on a on a shelf like a like a mouse running across the ground. You can leap on a a high shelf. I'm not going to do anything. You 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 can do the simple maneuver of just extending your arm to full length and placing it on my forehead, and I can't get to you. So with me, women are safe. The no. first time I asked you, like, why? What, what is it about? You said every woman has a bucket list. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just never forget that. Yeah. I said, I, I always pressed you. And like, just go a little bit further. Can you tell me something? Anything I should know? He says, yeah. And he says to me, he says, Barry, um, when you uh, choose to have sex from uh, behind a woman, right. um, you... Um, are on your knees. <laughs> I'm standing. <laughs> I am. It's great. It uh, it's it's certainly not a bad thing. And uh yeah, the same way men never just want to sleep with brunettes their entire life or blondes their entire life or any race their entire life. Uh women want variety as well. And uh I'm That's my only hope. Yeah, right? And every remember those little variety packs of cereal? Yes. Every every variety pack, and they would have little. They have about four or five mini boxes of cereal in these variety, like one serving. So you got five days of cereal, all of all of all of different cereals. Every pack, every pack, every variety pack had raisin bran. It had cornflakes. It had Cheerios. And, uh, and and maybe some sort of other sort of maybe shredded wheat. But then there would be a pack of corn pops or smacks or uh, uh, or golden crisp or, uh, or or fruity pebbles. There's the one that's not like all the other ones, which was always the first box to get eaten. You went right for the, you went right for the corn pops because that's not the raisin bran that's not the cornflakes that's not the all brand the cheerios the, the bland stuff this is something exciting this is something different i'm something exciting i'm something different i'm the corn pops of people yes yes you are <laughs> all right so you decide you want to start doing comedy mm-hmm. you show up at a mencia show carlos mencia yeah and you have that happen, and he brings you on stage, which is unbelievable. The guy who you've never done stand up, and the guy takes you aside and says, "Listen, if you can figure out how to do stand up, I'll have you open for me." Yeah. And so you start doing the open mic nights, getting yourself ready. Mm-hmm. He puts you on the tour, and how does it go? Amazing. It was great. And I you've been it. on stage how many times before you did the first tour date? Uh, with with Mencia? Yes. Maybe six. Six times on stage. Six or seven. And you're touring with a national headliner. Yeah. The eighth time I was on stage was at the Fox Theater in Bakersfield, which is about 1,200 seats. And that was the eighth time on stage. (laughs) I assure you, everybody, I have never heard of anything like this in my entire life normally there is a trajectory sure. as a stand-up whenever some stand-up says to me what do i have to do to get to the next level i'll say call me in 10 years because it's a 10-year yeah, plan absolutely and 
when people ask me when I, when young comics at, at ask me how, how do I get to your level what what did you do and I go well mine wasn't typical mine wasn't your average tra- average tra- uh, tra- trajectory um you go to your dad and mom and say mom dad i'm quitting usc yep. to do stand up what do they say no you're not <laughs> <laughs> which by which by the way is exactly what they should say i'm not going to be one of those people that's like my mom and dad didn't support my decisions no i would hope that if a child came to their parents when I, I had a year to go, Barry. I had a year to go before having my degree. Do you ever think of going back for a year? Never. Do you ever I've, think of getting it remotely? No, never. I hated school. I always did it just like I always knew when I was in a class and I knew that this wasn't a skill or something that I would have to use later, I, I paid horrible attention. If I got good grades, it was literally just to please my parents and that, and that was all just so they would not be upset with me and that would be one less problem in my life. Um, so, yeah, when I when I could get out of school, I, I was like, great, done. I, I was going to be a – I was wanting to – before I want to be a comic, I want to be a sports broadcaster. And I knew that getting an A in neuroscience isn't necessary to be a successful sports broadcaster. So I was okay with, you know – not getting good grades there and once i had this opportunity i i knew the second i was on stage barry i i knew that that was what i wanted to do and that what that's what i was going to do with the rest of my life so when they said when my parents said no you're not dropping out i said i'm not asking permission i'm doing it and you guys just have to know that and accept that and understand you're not going to be writing checks to USC anymore. And I, I I remember my family went, my mom and dad went as far as saying, they're saying, if you do this, if you do stand up comedy and if you don't go back to school and don't get your degree, you're out of the will. <laughs> and they said that and, and my, my family does okay. So that's a big thing. So when you did the show for mm-hmm. Showtime in Santa Barbara and they were in the crowd. Yeah. And you look them in the eye. Yeah. Have you ever had that Godfather moment with your mom and dad? No. Never. You never no. sat down and said, "Hey, you told no. me not to quit school." No, never. Because they because they did the right thing. They absolutely did the right thing. Their their mindset was correct. Got it. Really, really, you're, you're going to drop out of one of the most prestigious y- universities in the country to go into the ever so stable world of stand up comedy. No, they they did the absolute right thing. But but when they told me if you don't if you don't go back to school you're out you're out of the will. My response was, okay, that's fine. I'll make my own way being a stand up comic. So Mencia mm-hmm. puts you on his television show. Yeah, the first time you're ever doing a television show mm-hmm. and going in front of the cameras. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that experience. Something you've never done before and. How did you handle it and what happened? I did a lot of theater and stuff in high school and improv comedy and... Raisin in the Sun? Yeah, things of that nature. So it wasn't entirely new. I made some student films and stuff when I was at USC. So when he put me in front of the camera, I mean, I felt a lot of pressure because I I looked around 
and before if you if you messed up a take you you and your friends would kind of laugh about it and then you would just go again here you mess up a take every everyone 50 people have to do their job again they're 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 set up again or and that was in my mind but um the first couple bits we did were just man on the street stuff so i was i I would just be me i would just act like myself I, I, i wasn't playing a character I wasn't playing uh, a part. I, I was just playing me, and that that was very helpful because that got me used to being on camera and on set and being in front of all these people uh, without having to go too extreme. So um, it, it was a wonderful opportunity, and uh, I, I had a lot of fun, a lot a lot of fun on that show. And true to anything that happens in the world. You go on, you do a great job, you do multiple shows. Mm-hmm. You go on, you don't do a great job, you do one show. Yeah. You did multiple shows. Yeah. You had never done it before, and here you are. He keeps booking you again and again and putting you on more and more tours. Yeah, well, um, when he when he first put me on the show, I, was, I wasn't even his opener yet. I was a, I was a fan from the audience. <laughs> So, like, there was no intention to bring me back, but then the response that that bit got, and that my my button, my joke, where it was uh, it was an examination of the sign that you see on the five freeway driving to San Diego that says caution and it has people running across the street, which obviously are Mexicans since you're close to the border, but they don't but they don't look like the Mexicans that, you know, they don't, they don't look like Mexicans. Uh, that's, that's what the bit is. And he said, well, there's a, there's a baby on that. There, there's like a kid. Wh- who's that kid supposed to be? And everyone's like, uh, could be a white kid. It's like, no, it's not a white kid. Like, who's that kid supposed to be? And he said, could it be a midget? And I walked out on camera and struck the pose that the, that, that the kid had. And it got such a big laugh when it aired and uh you know for the studio audience that they thought oh we should have him back again we should do something and uh and then and then they made me um and then mencia made me actually a monologue writer on season two and uh then they had a rule in 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 the, in the writer's room where it was posted on the wall it said brad isn't in it until the last minute and what that means is that every writer when they would pitch sketches would have it end with me doing something with me doing a joke, a button, a, a, a something to make the sketch to have a big punch in the end. And then, and then, and then we're out. And then they finally had to call the writers together and say, can you write some shit without Brad in it? Can you, can, can you do stuff without him? So Brad isn't in it until the last minute was on the wall. So people would go like, all right, Write write a funny sketch without Brad, and then maybe we'll throw him in every now and then. So yeah, so they they kept putting me in stuff. So one of the things that I think people go through in their businesses and their careers, as well as their personal lives, you have people who everybody has those connections in their life that all the people in their life, friends, family. And there's people connected to those people as well within the situation. Every profession has it. And oftentimes things happen that divide families, divide friends, divide business associates with something that happens with somebody. And so here you are, the guy who gave you your first break 
after mm-hmm. eight or seven shows in the business. Yeah. Gave you your first television shots. Yeah. You're working in the clubs, hanging out with people with him. And then something goes viral between yep. him and another person who you, I'm not saying you were playing golf with, <laughs> but you were friendly with Joe Rogan. Yeah. And now you're in a situation where people look over to you as people draw sides and take sides. Mm-hmm. Certain comedians like Joe go after Carlos hard. People rally around Joe. Mm-hmm. Then there's people who support Carlos. But you're friendly with both camps yeah. when it goes down. Yeah. How do you as an artist, a friend, a comedian, somebody in the profession, how did you decide to handle things when all that happened and still stay relevant with the other comics? Well, first, it, well, first it was heartbreaking. It was it, it was heartbreaking to have now, what again, just the, this is when Carlos was accused of stealing material right. and being a person who stole material. Right, and, Ro- Go on, and, and, and yeah, and Rogan posted the video of. Uh, clips of Mencia doing jokes and um, other people doing jokes that uh, that that were similar. Um, it was heartbreaking because, first off, I was on the road with this man Carlos, and um, I I know the kind of guy he really is in terms of he's the guy that paid for all my travel to go on the road, took me on the road when I was literally nothing in this business, uh, would teach me things i've seen him craft jokes i've seen him do 20 minutes on something that happened in the news that day he does 20 minutes on it that night which is unheard of uh he would pay for all my meals on the road if we ever went shopping he'd say hey whatever you're getting throw it on my pile you're good i gotcha took such great care of me and is such a great friend introduced me to his family um i was there at the hospital three hours after his son was born and I was one of the first 10 people to see his son alive. So I'm insanely close with this man and still am. Uh, Still text him a lot. Whenever I accomplish anything big in this business, whenever something great happens, I always text him and say thank you. Whenever whenever the special happens, whenever the TV thing happens, whenever I get a part in a movie or something, I always text him and say thank you, always. So when all that was going on, it was truly heartbreaking to have someone say vicious things and career-ruining things to a friend, to a good human being. Um... And sometimes I'd go to the clubs and uh, the comics would come after me because they knew they couldn't go after Mencia. They couldn't talk to him. So they would come to me and start yelling at me. And I I was always I always took the same perspective of guys. Whatever your beef is, it's not with me. I'm not the one you're mad at. You're mad at him for whatever reason. Remember that, you know, just try not to lump me in. but it, it it was just it, it was so hard to walk that line to try to be friends with everyone to try to maintain a relationship and a friendship with the man who with my comedy father Carlos Mencia and then all the comedians that hate him it was uh it was really tough to do 
and uh, still, still is, it still is. Whenever people talk about him and start mentioning how they think he's a horrible person, I I clench my fists. I because I I want to tell people what a great guy he is and how immensely talented he is, and whether you believe he stole jokes or not anything i say isn't going to sway your opinion if you believe that he did it i can tell you that he didn't it's not going to change your mind if you believe he didn't do it i could give you examples of uh, of things and you won't and you won't be swayed so that i'm not really going to talk about what i am going to say is just the man is a great person he's a wonderful human being and uh, if you have beef with him, I'm sorry. If you uh, love him, great. Continue to love him. If, uh, it, it, but just don't don't lump me in with whatever you're mad at him about. And just uh, just understand that he really is uh, one of the nicest people in comedy and one of the most generous people in comedy. And that's pretty much all I, I I I I can say about it. But you do know that a lot of times comedians they get upset because let's say you go on a show and somebody uh, approaches you about it and says, you know, what's your opinion? Mm-hmm. And then you say, listen, it's not up to me to have an opinion. You have your own opinion. Don't love me and. And then after Carlos hears the interview, he knows that you haven't said anything bad. You've said wonderful things about him. Mm-hmm. But in his heart, he knows you didn't go to the mat and say, absolutely not. There is no fucking way. This mm-hmm. guy is the salt of this guy would never do that. Fuck you. Yeah. How dare you say that? So he knows that you've, you're walking the line. Right. Just like... Matthew McConaughey doesn't like to be impersonated, <laughs> yet Donald Trump does. Right, right, right. Certain comedians don't want another artist to play the middle. Right. And they want them to defend them. And other people say, hey, play the middle. Just take take yourself out of it. Save yourself. Yeah. The first time you talked to him after you heard an interview with you saying something similar to what you said. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like your relationship changed? No, not once. And and he told me, uh, and he told me about it because he called me after I did a certain interview where I said, I guess you know, some something similar. And uh, we talked about it, and he told me he's like, I I I know why you're doing what you what what you're doing. I get it. I completely understand. And I I'm calling you to 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 tell you that our relationship is not going to change. Did you give him advice as to how you felt he should handle it differently? Um, I didn't think I was in a position to do that. Uh, I thought that he, you know, he's been doing it as long as he's been doing it, and uh, I was still am a young buck compared, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what I could tell him and if, and if you know him and if you've talked to him you know he's an extremely intelligent guy and uh there there's nothing i could tell him that he doesn't already know or or hasn't already looked at look i remember seeing his first hour special where he took the nylons and put them over his head the joke is that uh 
he would uh, riot during the L.A. riots. This was his first HBO special. He, he would he would do he 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 would loot, but then he would loot with a nylon on his head, and then he would pull it back so so he looked Korean. That's right. Yeah, and then uh, so they could never identify him in a lineup or whatever. And it was a great joke, and just the visual of it, and him walking around the stage with that nylon pulled back just slayed the audience. It was great. If you ever get a chance to see that hour special, the one thing you'll garner from it, regardless of what you think of him one way or the other, mm-hmm. is that he performed that special like it was his last time on Earth. Yeah. I mean, he gave everything he had, and yeah. it, it was incredible. And it was at a time when unknown people didn't get HBO specials. It just did an incredible job. Yeah. And it pains me when people do things, and sometimes things happen knowingly. Some things happen unknowingly. Look, Dane Cook was accused of stealing material from Louis C.K. Yeah. 92 seconds mm-hmm. worth of material. 92 mm-hmm. and Louis went on a rampage mm-hmm. and it was very very damaging the Dane's career and just like Joe Rogan was damaging the Carlos's career yeah and I think the thing is that there's always going to be people who want to go out and police a certain situation for their audience or for the masses who support that craft and there's others that don't sure and who's to say what's right or wrong sure i have people yeah i have fans send me messages they're like so and so does a joke about how midgets don't like being called midgets and it's like calling a black person the n-word i'm like yeah i I know they're like well they stole it from you no no they didn't well did you steal it from them no There's always going to be jokes like that where there's a common thought. Yeah. There's always going to be, like, I remember when uh, I think it was George Bush was trying to sign a law uh, about building a wall to border the Mexican border in the United States. And three comedians who were Mexican-American, Paul Rodriguez, George Lopez, and Carlos, too, said the Mm -hmm. same joke that night. Who's going to build the wall? So the thing is, is that I don't know, you know, who knows one way or the other, but this is what I do know about Carlos Bencia. The guy probably has about seven hours of material. At least. Maybe ten. Yeah. Similarly to Dane Cook. Mm -hmm. The material that is in question totals probably, it could be between five and 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. out of 10 hours, mm-hmm. whether it makes it right or wrong. The fact is, is that the guy has been a prolific writer, a prolific performer, and whether he admits to what he did or he didn't or however it happens one way in between, the bottom line is the guy made it happen. And when he did his first HBO special, nobody said anything. Yeah. And... I happen to think he's an amazing performer, and it saddens me that his career has been damaged because of it, and he hasn't been able to come back the way he wants to come back. Certainly, nobody's feeling sorry for him because he has a beautiful home, <laughs> a beautiful family, mm-hmm. but the fact is is that it'd be a nice thing to see 
him figure it all out and come back because he's gone through that adversity and I hope that he is able to do that because people have things that happen. There's bad things that happen and there's ways to overcome them with the people who have accused you of those things. Right. I I hope I hope he has a resurgence. I really do because I know he's insanely talented and it would be it 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 would be great to see him do another an, another special like a like like a I don't want to call it a comeback special because he's been touring all while this is you know for the you know for years, uh but just that special where it makes people stand up and go oh all right yeah you are you are very good at this job. We're living in an age now where one tweet can ruin your career. You are seconds away from hitting the send button and ending your career at any given moment. See Gilbert Godfrey, <laughs> Affleck. Right. And, and, and because sometimes companies hire comedians and they, and they think, well, well, we hired him because he's edgy. And then he's edgy and they go, well, not that edgy. We have to have that line. There's, there's, um, there's a wonderful interview that I watch probably once a month. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's of the great Patrice O'Neill. Uh, talking to Fox News with uh, about Opie and Anthony. I guess Opie and Anthony had just done something, but th- th- this clip, they have the late, great Patrice O'Neill, responsible for Elephant in the Room, which, in my opinion, is one of the top ten specials of all time. It's amazing. And he's there, and he's, and he's sitting next to one of these ACLU... Uh, just spokespeople that the uber politically correct and they they, they say like well well opie and anthony joked about this is this funny patrice do you think this is actually funny and he goes yes it's hilarious if done right we're in the business of being funny that's all we're doing you cannot comment on this because it's you're not in that business you're not in the business of being funny and he and the and uh, the woman from the ACLU whatever group just goes into her talking points the well people are upset and P, and P, and Patrice dissects her and tears her down in the most brilliant way it, at one point She's like, well, well, like, well, certain sex isn't funny, and and and, and Patrice goes, really? Have you ever heard of the Angry Pirate? <laughs> and then, this is live on Fox News, and she goes, well, no, what's the Angry Pirate? And she goes, well, it, it's when you have sex with a woman, you finish in her eye, and then you kick her in the shin, so she hops around going, ah. <laughs> The, the the cameramen are dying laughing, them, and, then, and then Patrice goes, "No, no, no! You cannot laugh at that. That is not funny. That is horrible." And you you just see the look on this face of this spokeswoman who who brought a knife to a gunfight, and Patrice just mutilates her. And I watch that clip to remind myself all the time that. I'm in the business of being funny. That's all I have to worry about. That is it. If I'm funny, I win. Great. That's something that uh, no casting director can take away. That's something no network can take away. No, no. Like you said earlier, I'm pitching a TV show right now. I think it's a wonderful TV show. I think it would be a great TV show that uh, many people would love, that they would laugh at, but it would also have lessons and it would cause a lot of emotional moments on television, that of which we have never seen, never seen before. But... 
there's a possibility that it could be turned down and not picked up by any network. Not even Crackle might not touch this thing. And I, I say that because that's an upstart network, which I actually would like to be on. Uh, that could happen. If they don't buy my show, I'm still okay because I can be funny. And as long as I can be funny, I will always work. And I will all because I, I will always have a skill and I will always have something that people will will want, people will, will enjoy. And at the end of the day, I can go home going, I'm funny. I'm, fu- I'm fine. Fantastic. All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names or okay. something. And I want you to tell a story that means something to you or just a word or a phrase or anything that comes to mind. All right. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel, uh, the, a man who is, I've been on his show uh, four times, and starting I think in 2009 or 10 was my first time on, on his show, and I only met him for the first time four months ago. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but he knew... He knew who I was because we have similar friends. J- Jimmy Kimmel used to be on the Kevin and Bean show. He was the sports guy on their show. So he saw his relationship with them. So through those relationships, he knows who I am. And when I saw him, I met him at a, a dinner, a charity dinner that uh, Bob Saget uh, did. And uh, I walked up to him and I and I and I said that to him. We're like, hey, I've been on your show four times, but this is the first time I've I've actually talked to you. And he laughed about it, and he, we talked for a little bit. And he and he's a great dude. He's he's a he's a wonderful person, doing some of the most innovative things in late night. And uh, I love watching his show. Dave Attell. Dave Attell. <sighs> I'm trying to think if there's any comic more respected by other comedians than da- than Dave Attell. And here's how much Dave Attell cares about comedy. When I did his show, uh, The Comedy Underground. Um, when, filmed at the Comedy Cellar. Yeah, fil- fil- filmed at the Comedy Cellar. He, every comic was supposed to do five minutes, five to seven. And that, that was the set that was going to air. So I prepared five to seven minutes. On my night, Two people went on before me, Ari Shafir and Pete Davidson. Uh, Ari goes on first, does 20 minutes, kills. Now, who knows what five of that 20 is going to be used, but he kills. I'm sitting there going, I have seven. I have seven minutes prepared. Pete Davidson goes on, does 20 minutes, kills. Just, Just kills the room. I'm like, oh, shit. Now... I'm in this position where, as a comedian, I'm wor- I'm I'm thinking about the five minute set that's going to air in front of thousands and thousands of people, but I'm also thinking about these this hundred people, this couple hundred people that are in this room right now. They can't see Ari Shafir do twenty and Pete Davidson do twenty, and then me come on with a strong six. Fuck that. No. <laughs> So I go on stage and I do 20 minutes (laughs) and I have a good set. And uh, when I get off, I'm talking to Dave. I go, I just blew it because I I just put all my material in the hands of editors at Comedy Central 
to mold into a five minute set. And I, I, I know what they're going to do because they did it to me on live at Gotham where they cut a setup and just aired the punchline because they're like, well, they, they laughed when he said this thing. Yeah, because they heard the thing before. And when you air that joke without the setup, you have no idea why why. People are laughing, and and Dave, and Dave and Dave goes, "Don't worry, I'm editing. I'm editing the sets." Dave Attell cares about comedy so much that he himself edited the sets of all the comedians that run Dave Attell Underground, and he made sure that every set looked flawless, and they did. That's how much he cares. Because who? What? What does it affect Dave Attell if he edit? If they edit Pete Davidson's set to just include the punchlines or just one, like, you, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't affect Dave. No no one would see Pete Davidson do a, 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 a poor set on Dave Attell's show and then attribute that to Dave Attell. No one. But he doesn't care. He cares so much about stand-up comedy that he's like, no, I'm going to make sure that when I edit Pete's 20 minutes, which was great, that it's now I'm going to edit it to five minutes. That is great. And uh, he edited he edited my set very well. I was thoroughly pleased with it, and I have nothing but positive things to say about Dave Attell. Bill Burr. Bill Burr is the best doing it today. Uh, some people some people say Louis. Some people say Bill. Some people, you know, who, who whoever. Bill Burr is the absolute best doing it today. And uh, he did a bit. I saw him last night. Uh, a, a show out in LA here called the Goddamn Comedy Jam, which a comedian does uh, ten minutes of stand up and then tells a brief story and then performs a song with a live band, and it's the most fun show you'll ever go to. They did it in the Montreal Comedy Festival. You saw it. Since Montreal, they were, every festival's booked up the Goddamn Comedy Jam. They're 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 doing Bonnaroo this year. They're doing the Moon Tower Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas. It's a fantastic fantastic show and bill was there last night and he started doing a bit during his stand-up about um how he hates uh what the media is doing to peter dinklage they're trying to sell peter dinklage as a badass and he doesn't like that he doesn't appreciate it because he's not a badass he's a little person he's going on this rant which is a brilliant joke and i'm on the side of the stage and when he gets to the end of the bit, I run up on stage and double birds just <laughs> flip him off. And the crowd goes nuts. And then Bill, just like a professional, took that moment and then started making fun of me and roasting me and talking. And it, it was it was so funny. It was just so funny. The guy is unbelievable. I, I remember when the whole... Um, Donald Sterling controversy happened. I had a whole bit about Donald Sterling. I'm like, this is a great bit. This is a wonderful bit. I went to the improv that night and saw Bill Burr go up and do his Donald Sterling bit, and it was so perfect, so genius. I scrapped mine. I was like, I can't compare. <laughs> no way. So Bill, B- Bill's the best doing it today. Jim Jeffries. Jim Jeffries takes more chances on stage right now than anybody, and he can tell jokes that jeez like you're just you're laughing at it going I'm laughing at a joke about a man murdering his girlfriend in a bathroom why am I laughing at this but you're laughing because it's brilliant comedy and um and he's also extremely nice to comedians he he put a ton of comics on his show legit on FX uh very generous and uh, 
he has a son now and Jim from being as crazy as he is uh, the, the past with drinking and drugs and all that stuff all of which he's admitted I'm not breaking ground um, when he when he announced to all the comics uh, at, at the improv one night that he was that his girlfriend's pregnant and, and he's gonna be a father every comic was horrified they all said what Jim how could you be a dad how could you with the stuff you talk about on stage how could you be a dad Jim paused for a second and went well Brad, you're about the size of a child, <laughs> and you haven't died around me. <laughs> I, 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 I love Jim Jeffries. I, yeah, I love Jim Jeffries. He's a great dude and uh, an insanely talented comic. Your partner in crime on the About Last Night podcast, Adam Ray. My heterosexual life mate. <laughs> yes. The amazing part about, about Adam Ray is that when we started the podcast, it was essentially, it it, it was my podcast. They came to me and said, Brad, this network came to me and said, we want want you to do a podcast. And I was like, I can't do it by myself. I'm not going to do like the Bill Burr Monday morning podcast thing. I need to, I need someone to bounce ideas off. Why did you feel like you couldn't do it yourself? Uh, I need to react to something. And I'm, uh, my dad always told me that a true sign of intelligence is to know what you don't know. And uh, I know when I'm not the smartest man in the room. I'm, I know when I'm not the funniest man in the room. And just alone by myself with no one to bounce ideas off of or give original ideas, I'm not the funniest man in the room. Um, so I decided, well, I, I love hanging out with this comic, Adam Ray. And, uh, and uh, so I'll have him. And when, like, like I said, when it started, it was my podcast. I, I drove it. I, I put it in the right direction. And then at some point, it became Adam's podcast to where he uh, books a majority of the guests. He edits the episodes. He does intros. He does so much work on it. Sometimes I feel horrible, but sometimes I offer, and he's like, "Ah, I got this." But then, and then I would get upset, but at the same time, he, what he turns out is a great product, and he does wonderful things for our podcast, and that, and he's so, and we 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 we've gotten to the point where we now know, we when we're interviewing people, we can do, we know what each other's thinking, we're we're, we we know where we're going, we we know how to end, we know, and uh, and very few people work as hard in this business as Adam Ray. He is going to be a big star. It's just a matter of time. And like I said earlier, it's just a matter of him getting his shot. He does YouTube videos. He's the he does he's the voice of Hyundai. He's the now the voice of promos for Conan O'Brien on TBS. He uh he he's he's been in a ton of movies. He does stand up. He he's always he's always he's never satisfied. In anything, he's always writing, always figuring out something new to do, and uh, he's an insanely hard worker. And I can't wait for the rest of the world to discover him. Me neither. Me neither. Mm-hmm. Bob Saget and John Stamos. <laughs> Bob Saget. I grew up watching America's Funniest Home Videos and in, in, in Full House, so when I got to meet Bob Saget, it was an insane honor. And the first thing he said to me, first words out of Bob Saget's mouth when he met me were, you have to meet John Stamos. The reason why he said that is because John Stamos is afraid of little people. 
<laughs> he has something called uh, achondrophobia. It's a fear of little people. And at first I thought Bob Saget was joking, but then I started asking around. Other people confirmed this to me. But uh, Bob Saget comes up to me, and the first words out of his mouth are, you have to meet John Stamos. And when he tells me that John Stamos is afraid of little people, I go, hell yes, let's go meet John Stamos. So I run up to John Stamos. He's not looking at me. He's having a conversation with Bob Saget, so his back is turned to me. And I, and I, I run up to him, and I grab his leg, and I start humping his leg. Like in just insane, exaggerated, uh, simulated sex, and with his knee, and John Stamos looks down and sees me humping his leg, and just le- le- can only. How would I describe the sound he made? A yelp, <laughs> and that's not that's not an online review. It, 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 it's something along the lines of ah! like, like like that, <laughs> and he just starts he starts like kicking his leg violently to get me off. But then at the same time, he knows that there's a lot of show business people there. This is backstage at April Foolishness. And he's like, I can't look like I'm afraid of this little person in front of all these people. So then he starts like, ha, 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 okay. And uh, yeah, then we have then we have a moment where he's trying, and and the whole time Bob Saget's just laughing insanely, um, as 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 any friend would do. So, and here's and, and, and in case you don't believe me or don't think that he's uncomfortable with little people or that other people don't know about this about John Stamos when I met him when, when, I, when I saw Stamos again at Bob Saget's charity dinner the same one when, when, I, when I met Kimmel Stamos walks up to me grabs my hand and goes come with me come with me right now and he starts walking with me and he, and he walks in front of Jimmy Kimmel holding my hand going you see I'm good now I'm good stop it I'm good now <laughs> And awesome. and and I asked him about. It. He's like, "Oh, I'm good with you. I'm fine with you." Like now that we've joked about it and talked about it, he's fine with me. I I I I hope he's good with other little people. But yeah, he's uh, yeah yeah yeah. He's good. He's 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 good with me now. And uh, yeah, they're both. Uh, Bob Saget did the About Last Night podcast. He's he's done an episode. I would love to get John Stamos on. Um, but yeah, uh, Saget was insanely generous with his time. Always responds when I email him, which I'm. I never take that for granted. Always shocked, and uh, just a, just two 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 great guys. Buying clothes, hate buying clothes. <laughs> clothes don't fit me. I hate them. Um, I hate buying clothes because I have to get them all tailored. So uh, yeah, it's never comfortable. Shirts are normally fine. My body's average size, so the, uh, un, un, uh, what about the pants? Pants. <laughs> what do you do? Where do you buy your pants? How do you do it? I buy the pants that relatively fit me around the waist, and then I take them to my European tailor, who uh, I swear I have put his kids through college. <laughs> uh, I bring so many clothes to him and pants and every jackets and suits and things like that. That now the thing is, is because it takes me so long to get an outfit like together and the process is so long that i don't throw away anything i i found a shirt in my closet that i had that i bought in fifth grade and it still fits me so that that that, that gives you an idea i don't throw away anything but uh, yeah i hate the process of buying clothes and finally mm-hmm. your dad <laughs> Uh, my dad. My dad is 
Um, the most special person in my life. He molded me. He created me. Everything that I am is because of him. And he's taking care of my family to an insane level. He worked very hard. He made a lot of great decisions. He instilled life lessons in me that I've I have framed in my house. He had all these maxims and sayings that he would tell me. And I framed them and I put them in my house. So no matter what, I will always have those to look at. I will always have his advice. My dad also um, would come home constantly throughout my childhood with little bandages on his face, on his arm, because he would have uh, little bits of skin cancer removed. This happened because, I mentioned earlier, he's an avid golfer. He would go out from age five, four, whatever, play 18 holes, never wore sunscreen. Sometimes he'd play 36 holes, never wore sunscreen. He would do this all day, every day. That caught up to him eventually. And eventually, um, a few years ago, uh, he came back, not with a bandage, but a message that he had uh, been diagnosed with a melanoma and uh, that it's, he's got, he's got cancer and it's not, before when he would say skin cancer, he would get burned off and there, that's the it. That's, that's the end of it. This was not it. This was radiation. This was chemotherapy. This was having part of his face removed. Um, the entire time, while being very realistic and understanding the consequences, uh, he never allowed the family to stop. He, allowed, he forced us to keep going in terms of our normal lives, keep going in terms of... of didn't want to stop, didn't want to hinder anyone, didn't want to stop anyone else from doing what they're doing because of what he was going through. I mean, we still did. You can't not. But I remember he went through an insane round of chemotherapy and he had a, and he had a doctor's appointment. And I was, I, I, I had a gig at the Comedy Works in Denver. And I was there and I was backstage. And I knew that today was the doctor's appointment where he finds out if the chemotherapy worked or if we got to go through another round of it and another round of it 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 it, it, it wouldn't have been good <laughs> uh when when it doesn't work and you have to go through another round it's kind of saying we're doing this just for show it's we're doing this just so we don't so we so we do something to satisfy the people. My phone rings and I'm backstage. It's my mom. I know it's the call. And uh I answer the phone. I I let it ring for a few times because I didn't want to answer it out of fear of the bad news. And I answer it, and uh, my mom doesn't say hello. I don't say hello. I just slide the bar over to answer, and the first words out of her mouth were, he's in remission. 
And I dropped the phone. I fell to my knees. And I started crying. Much like I'm doing right now. And all the other comics are looking at me like, what the fuck is wrong with you? But they knew something was up because I literally just burst into tears. And I just kept repeating, he's in remission. He's in remission. And then as I'm having this moment, that is one of the happiest of my life but yet one of the most emotionally draining because I feel like when I dropped the phone, I dropped every bit of weight, of guilt, of fear, of sadness, of remorse. I dropped everything with that phone on the ground and it left me. I hear the words, give it up for your headliner, Brad Williams. And I have to walk out on stage. And I I suck it up. I'm like, oh, God. Okay. Woo. All right. And I walk out on stage. And uh, I go into my show. I start doing it. At the time, I had this joke in my act where I, I say, dwarves are happiness. We should, uh, we're not using little people correctly. We should be giving midgets to cancer patients. And I said that line, I've said that line hundreds of, maybe even thousands of times before. It's in my special, so I've been running it. This time I say the line, we should be giving the midgets to cancer patients. I don't make it to the punchline. I burst into tears on stage, and I, once again I fall to my knees. And now the audience knows something's going on. And I have to tell them, what just happened and I do and the audience you've you know because there's because you've been in this business a long time and you've seen a lot of things there's ovations and then there's ovations there's there's I'm giving you a standing ovation because it's the polite thing to do because everyone else is standing because it's the end of a comedy special that we're supposed to do it here and then there's o- and then there's ovations there's ovations like the one Jimmy Valvano re- uh, received at the ESPY awards giving the speech when he knew he he would be dead shortly after that there's ovations like the one that Stuart Scott received when he gave, when he also ironically spoke at the SB Awards, getting the Arthur Ashe Lifetime Achievement Award, there's those ovations. I got one of those ovations that night because everyone was, they felt happy. They've never met my dad. They don't know him, but they, but they saw what he meant to me, and. They saw the kind of feelings I have for him. And they didn't stop clapping. I did the show. And here's the thing about cancer. Is 
everyone's gone through it. I hate that that's a true statement. Everyone has someone in their lives that have been through something along along the lines of cancer. It's either taken or it, it's been fought. And the thing about it, because it's such a common thread, is that when my show was done and people were coming up to me afterward, because I meet people after every one of my shows, no one was bitter. No one had survival remorse. I don't even know if that's the right term, but no one was saying, why did your dad beat it and not and not my mom, not my sister, not my brother, not my cousin, not not me. No one said that. Everyone was just thrilled that someone beat it. That someone beat this horrific thing that is a stain on the human condition. And I was so thankful uh, for that. And uh, thankful that to this day when I tell stories about my dad on stage and explain how he beat cancer, people continuously come up to me and they tell me their stories. There's two things that make me happiest in the world after shows. One is when people come up to me and say, I was a soldier in Iraq and I saw you when you came and performed and now I'm here or anywhere I did in the Middle East. That makes me insanely happy. The only thing that can beat that is when someone comes up to me and says, I know how that is because I beat cancer too. That's when, I, that's when you will never see me smile any bigger. Awesome. Brad. Unbelievable. Congratulations, my friend, on like a uh, watershed moment. That was just an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's just, wow. Thank you for even, pulling it out of me. <laughs> I don't tell that to people. I don't even want to go for the final three questions now after that. <laughs> Nothing's going to compare to that. You don't have anyway, to. but I'm going to. Your proudest moment in show business. Proudest moment of show business. Uh, getting a standing ovation at the uh, April Foolishness, the first one. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself and progress your career to the next level. Getting turned down for the half hour special for the third time. Being told I wasn't alternative enough. I said, all right. And I knew that when that happened, that I just have to try harder, be better, and make certain people regret that decision and I feel like I did with the Showtime special oh yeah so that's yeah that would that would answer that question yes you did final question what advice do you have for the young artist comedian in school knowing that they're mm -hmm. don't want to do what they're doing whatever job they're in and they have a dollar and a dream but they want to get to the kind of place and have the kind of career that you have in film, <laughs> television, and all media? Um, here's the thing, though, is that 
if it's what you're supposed to do, there's no advice that I could give you that'll make you succeed any faster. Because if it's what you're supposed to do and what you want to do and what you were designed to do, what you were put on this earth by either science or God, whatever your belief, whatever you were put on this earth to do, if, if it is truly your calling, you'll find a way. You'll make it happen. You'll, you will not let anything stop you. When someone tells you something negative, rather than internalize it and uh, blame yourself, you'll look at them as if to say, you fool. How could you not see that this is great? Whether it be comedy, television, a movie, a piece of artwork, uh, or a business proposal, whatever that, or an idea for your own business. If it is what you are passionate about, there is absolutely nothing that will stop you from doing it, ever. I feel like you should just drop the mic like a Def Jam comic <laughs> after that. Brad Williams, you are the smartest and funniest man in this room, my friend. <laughs> I am so grateful that you came by. This podcast was epic. Thank you so much. I hope it exceeded your expectations because it blew me away. I didn't expect to cry. So, yes, uh, it, 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 it was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm glad that we did it when, when we did it. Because uh, this was uh, the, the, this was an experience I will not soon forget, my friend. I will never forget it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Barry. As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And I'm going to let Brad Williams as me say the final thing. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for listening to my podcast with Brad Williams. You can find him on Twitter at Funny Brad, on Instagram at Brad Williams Comic. All of his tour dates, he's already booked up for much of 2016. They're all available at bradwilliamscomedy.com. <laughs> and uh, subscribe to his podcast that he does with one of my favorite comedians, Adam Ray. Uh, it's called the About Last Night Podcast. <laughs> and it's available on iTunes and the Science Show Network. And just for anyone out there listening, <laughs> for whatever your goals are that you want to accomplish, whatever things that are there that you want to do, <laughs> you just have to be undeniable, man. <laughs> and as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show... Tell no one. <laughs> <laughs> they say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over 
So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.